Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian and Kevin Olson bringing you all the biggest news through May of 2022 for Basin Breakdown. Now, welcome to the segment. If you're not familiar with it, we go back a month and we look at all the biggest stories across some of our major basins and producing areas and give you a little bit of our feedback on each story. But hey, I'm not going to delay it anymore. I know Kevin's got a tea time to make it to later, and I don't want to <laughs> hold him up. So we're just going to launch right into it with the DJ, Niall Brera, and Piance Basins, starting with a visit from Granholm. U.S. Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm made a quick trip to Colorado at the end of May when she announced the $38 million in investments that would be distributed to four U.S. national laboratories, including Golden's very own NREL, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. The investments are being used to incorporate net-zero technologies into the laboratories as they emitted the equivalent of 2,300 homes worth of carbon dioxide in 2020. Oof. Yeah, kind of ironic for the renewable laboratory, but <laughs> they're making good efforts. The director of NREL believes both NREL campuses in Colorado can become net-zero by 2026. So, hey, it's pretty cool. And, and Tavis, I think this is honestly a great story to start out with because, you know, we love talking about energy here. It doesn't have to necessarily be oil and gas. And like you said, NRAIL is in our very own backyard. You know, you and I used to probably bike by it or drive by it just about every day coming in here. Um, and so it's it's great to see that the National Renewable Energy Laboratory is emitting 2,300 homes <laughs> worth of carbon dioxide every year. And so I think it's kind of cool that, okay— Maybe we should, you know, step this up a little bit to to kind of become the the gold standard for oh yeah, not just you know um, research into what these technologies can do, but how about we implement that research? So I think it's a great story to start out with to kind of say like, hey, you know, look at you know these other technologies we're looking into. Um, but enough on NRAIL. Let's talk about the PFAS. So Colorado State Legislature enacted one of the most comprehensive bills limiting the sale of PFAS containing consumer products this past month. The measure also attempts to limit the use of PFAS chemicals in oil and gas extraction fluids, specifically in the context of fracking. Many of the bill's prohibitions will take effect as early as 2024. PFAS are actually a group of chemicals associated to major health problems such as cancer, organ damage, and immune system suppression. Colorado is going to join a number of states taking steps to reduce PFAS and use the exposure of the bill to pass that into law. And I think this is a lot like how we changed the way we use aerosol sprays, how there was harmful parts in it that actually impacted our atmosphere. We're finding that a lot of the PFAS that is used in waterproofing or even old laundromats from soap is actually very difficult to get rid of, according to a lot of my environmental engineer friends. So it's probably a good idea that we avoid using these in uh, fracking operations, especially if it's going to be a sensitive reservoir that could communicate to a water reservoir. So uh, this just makes sense to me. We're learning, oop, this wasn't as good as it was. It's kind of an asbestos. Let's figure out something else. Yeah, it's kind of like you said. It's it's Let's develop the technology to just be constantly improving. And I think that is you know going to be the mindset that the oil and gas, and really the energy industry, has to adopt um, down the road is just we got to always be better than we were yesterday. Otherwise, you know, things aren't going to go our way. Mm-hmm. And last for the DJ, environmentalists are calling for a wider scope. A coalition of 33 Colorado environmental groups sent the state a letter requesting that the state include existing ozone, air pollution, and climate change impacts when assessing the effects of pollution from oil and gas operations. The letter is addressed to the COGCC and includes a series of recommendations for how the commission can broaden the scope of its report by including a comprehensive view of pollution in a given area. 
as well as how different sources of pollution, such as pollution from oil and gas activities and pollution from automobiles, compound the respective harmful environmental impacts. And I'm glad that they're including things like, hey, automobiles too, because it's difficult to quantify a lot of these things. Even if it's scope one, scope two, scope three, everything we do is going to have some sort of carbon impact. So yeah, we're being better, we're being more mindful, but I'm afraid that the COGCC may take some new regulations and run. And how often have we seen, well, this will not be approved because the environmental impact studies were not adequate because they didn't look at things like this. I, I do worry. Well, not only I think is it important that we're looking at the comprehensive view of pollution, but I think it's also important, um, kind of as a side note of this, they're also looking, taking a look at each individual piece because so many times, especially in the oil and gas industry, it's like, oh my gosh, you guys are polluting this X amount for um, you know, additions of CO2 into the atmosphere. And it's like, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Are you saying, you know, all petrochemicals or are you saying specifically the extraction industry or the refining industry? And, you know, maybe it turns out that, you know, all these trucks that are burning it on the road is, is really the concern and maybe not necessarily extraction process. But, you know, if we try and do a blanket regulation over all these, it's important to know where each individual subset's coming from. So while I do think it's important to get a comprehensive um, pollution impact review. I also think part of that becomes, let's look at each individual piece to see where we can improve the best. But enough of talking about the DJ and Ibrar. Let's take it to our neighbors to the north in the Powder River Basin, where let's talk about Wyoming's energy leaders, where they're growing impatient with government inaction. While a court order from Louisiana forced the Department of the Interior to resume lease sales in June, Wyoming doubled down and argued in a district court that the Biden administration's pausing of new oil and gas leases was actually illegal. All this comes as states are putting pressure on the Department of the Interior to open up federal leasing after 15 months of pause. The Department of the Interior would have gone longer if they could, as the National Environmental Policy Act requires further environmental review, but mineral-rich states are growing restless. This is a hard one to include because I, I like to every month revisit this and update the situation, but the situation's not updating. We're stuck in legal battle litigation. The states are upset. The feds keep using their powers to block them from developing anything. And I get it. After 15 months of this, I'm frustrated too, but where, where do we go from here? Suing's not working. Exactly. It's, it seems like, you know, we're a broken record on here because we've talked about this for, I mean, maybe not the past 15 months, but... <laughs> It certainly has been about the past five straight. And, and kind of like you said, Tavis, it just seems like we're not going anywhere. So, you know, we're probably going to keep bringing this up because this is something that is really affecting Wyoming and other mineral-rich states. It's not just Wyoming, um, but this is something that obviously we're going to continue to update you on. And hopefully next week, next month, we've got a nice update for you. Oh, here's hoping. Until then, we'll just keep looking at the news we have. The Petroleum Association of Wyoming sent a letter of protest to the BLM, arguing that the reduction in leases available was just too severe. Conservation groups from eight states responded by submitting their own letters of protest. It would really seem as if nobody is pleased. The BLM is offering a total of 129 parcel, with 321 of them deferred and 27 outright deleted. Pete Obermuller complained about the locations of the leases, arguing that they are in some of the most remote and difficult places to reach. The 50% hike in royalty rates also contributes to the unattractiveness of the leases. I believe that's from 12.5 to about 18.75. And, I mean, I, I understand why people are upset. At 321 deferred and 27 deleted, and the remaining 129 are remote and hard to access, 
Almost seems as if they did that on purpose, but again, this is the BLM, an arm of the DOI, so uh, not sure how this is going to shake out. I'm kind of with you on there on that one, Tavis, and it <laughs> seems like they're kind of just saying, oh yeah, you know, you want these parcels of land, here they are, but but we can't get to them. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we have to might as well roads. just not, you know, give it to us. So again, it's, it's frustrating from Wyoming's point of view, but, you know, hopefully that we can get this all squared away and, and help develop this a little bit further, but... Talk about oil and gas spills in Wyoming. Oil and gas-related spills unfortunately increased by 5% in 2021, according to the Center of Western Priorities. Of the nearly 40,000 barrels of oil, mud, and produced water, 50% came from the two top-producing counties of Converse and Campbell counties. Quote, it's just not the nature of it, you know. Where there's increased activity, you're going to see an increased chance of something going wrong, end quote. Vice President of the Petroleum Association of Wyoming said, Top five offenders were EOG, Devon, Crowhart Energy, Chesapeake, and Merritt Energy. And I just wanted to include this story because I saw some other headlines that just said oil and gas spills up. Or, you know, that 5% number, you go, oh, wow, that's that's pretty intimidating. But considering the production between 2020 versus 2021, it's easy to skew statistics. So, hey. I'm glad that production skyrocketed and spills and incidents only went up 5%. So just a little feel-good story to throw into the mix. Exactly. And kind of like Tavis said, it's it's important to note that, okay, yes, while the number of spills increased and the volume increased, the percentage of spills to overall production has gone way down. Yeah. So really, in reality, these guys are actually doing you know better than they were in 2021. But the headlines are going to read, oh, you know, oil and gas industry destroying the environment. Well, the reality is they're actually taking steps in the right direction just so happens that it comes with associated increases in production. Mm -hmm. But that rounds out the news from Wyoming and the Powder River Basin, and you know an episode of the Basin Breakdown would not be complete without at least visiting Texas. And we'll kick it off with the Permian, where some extraction companies are continuing to ride the brakes. Even as multiple oil-based commodities continue to break record high price points, especially last month, producers are hesitant to grow their asset and production portfolios. Why? Well, Investors are now begging companies to keep spending low so that they can take that cash they earn for either dividends or buybacks. Investors have made it clear, getting debt paid down and returning cash to shareholders is the new priority. More than half of American oil is produced by public companies who are returning around one-third of their cash to investors. Still, even if this wasn't the case, growth in the Permian would likely be minimal. Supply chain distribution issues have extended the drill-to-pump timeline from a speedy record three months for that Permian area to as long as a year or more. The cost of steel is now three times higher than usual. Some rig rates are at $30,000 per day, and contracts for new rigs could still rise as much as 40% by next year. While most of the world is emerging from the pandemic, industrial trade systems continue to struggle to limit how much energy production can grow domestically. And this is just a myriad of issues that's really preventing a lot of this production and really contributing to a lot of the spot supply issues that we're seeing in markets. Speaking of markets, two new pipelines in the Permian are actually being expanded to increase gas capacity by more than a billion cubic feet per day. The Whistler pipeline will have the capacity increased from 2 billion to 2.5 billion standard cubic feet per day, according to a recent announcement. The Whistler connects the Permian to the Waha gas hub to allow gas to reach market exporters on the Gulf Coast. The Permian Highway Pipeline will be getting another 650 million cubic feet of capacity itself in order to mobilize even more gas from the Permian to the coast. All investors were eager to pursue the project as most are excited about energy rebounding in the face of global, a global energy shortage. 
In 2021, cash flow to the ENP sector grew by $493 billion, and Riasted Energy estimates it could grow by $834 billion this year. These increases follow up the $126 billion drop witness in 2020. Oh boy, I hope these projects are finished by the time the Freeport facility is also repaired because, yeesh, that was poor timing. No kidding. Next, ExxonMobil masterfully manages methane mitigation. ExxonMobil received an A-grade certification for managing methane emissions from independent marketing intelligence company MIQ. The inspected facilities were located in Poker Lake, New Mexico, and affords the company the ability to boast as the first company to earn the top mark for control of methane emissions from associated gas. Responsible Energy Solutions carried out the third-party audit using standards from MIQ to assess the effectiveness of fixed monitoring systems, aerial imaging, optical gas imaging cameras, proprietary acoustic sensors, and leak detection and repair practices. This is surely the first of many headlines of this nature, as demand for certified gas continues to rise, and emissions are reduced across all scopes. So, hey, good on ExxonMobil for being, you know, the first super major to get this A rating. That's awesome. And I'm sure that we're going to continue to see more and more of these as the years progress. But let's talk about our underdog and one of our favorites here on the show, the Eagleford, where a Japanese company is actually investing $500 million into this basin. The investments will be made in the tight oil assets that have already been bought, as well as those that will be acquired later in 2022, over a three-year period from 2022 to 2024. Production from the tight oil assets is expected to begin in the middle of this year, according to the company. Japex entered the tight oil development sector in the United States back in 2012 when it purchased development shares in the Eagleford Formation in Middle McAllen, Texas. In addition to investing in the development of acquired assets, the company obtained more interests in the same formation in 2013. In a press statement, Japex said, quote, During this time period, Japex has accumulated the knowledge of the tight oil development business, end quote. And to follow up, another story of other people continuing to invest in the Eagleford Basin. Ranger Oil Corporation stated today that it has signed separate agreements to purchase three bolt-on oil-producing properties in the Eagleford Shale that are adjacent to their existing assets for a total acquisition price of approximately $64 million in cash. The acquisitions are expected to add to the company's deep, high-quality portfolio of well locations while also generating significant near-term operating benefits. Ranger's leverage ratio should continue to improve as a result of increased cash flow. Subject to usual closing conditions, the transactions are expected to close on early in the third quarter, and I just love to see small, mid, large cap alike all investing their time and effort into the Eagleford. Absolutely. I mean, really just in the industry as a whole, and just the Eagleford happens to be, you know, one of our favorites, one of the underdogs here. So it's nice to see that development and um, kind of exploration is coming back to the Eagleford after so many years of struggling. But I believe that rounds out all of the news we got for Texas so we're going to move it a little bit east, well, northeast, I guess, Oklahoma Scoop Stack Basins. Oklahoma is taking a page out of Texas's book. Oklahoma legislature is introducing the Energy Discrimination Act of 2022, which would prevent the state from issuing contracts to corporations that do not do business with fossil fuel companies, much like the policies Texas recently implemented. According to this bill's text, Quote, state government entities with holdings and companies on the list shall notify the treasurer and warn such companies that it may be subject to divestment. The company has 90 days to cease its boycotting activities to avoid divestment, end quote. 
The bill is now back in the House for consideration of state Senate amendments, and this is uh, this is all really coming out pretty quick. If you remember last year, we had the story where a small company or mid-cap company in Texas said, hey, North Face, we want some jackets. And they said, hell no, we don't support oil and gas, despite their jackets being made from synthetic materials. So these states are trying to uh, create legislation that ensures their interests inside the state are protected. I don't really know how I feel about it. I think we'll have to see how it develops, but that's that. See, unfortunately, Tavis, I think this might be just kind of showing face because they say specifically right there, may be subject to divestment. It's not saying that, oh, if you associate yourself, you know, we're, we're not going to do business with you anymore. It's, you know, well, may, maybe we maybe we won't. So I think it's one of those, you know, they're trying to appease both sides, but um, I, I really can't imagine that this is going to go a whole heck of a lot further. Up next, let's talk about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service addressing orphaned wells. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is donating $13 million to the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill in order to fund the work for plugging 175 orphaned wells. The wells are strewn across six different national wildlife refuges between Louisiana and Oklahoma. In addition to properly plugging and abandoning these wells, the Fish and Wildlife Service will be putting lots of its efforts towards reclamation to ensure that the sites are fully restored and habitable for local wildlife. This operation will also have the added benefit of strengthening both states' relationship with the service and creating good-paying jobs for a period of time. And honestly, Tavis, I think this is probably the good feel-good story of the month because, you know, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service, they're donating, you know, their funds to this project. Not only are they creating jobs, but they're also opening up that door of communication between, you know, the energy industry and, you know, and often overlooked, you know, saying, hey, you know, we operate on these lands too, and we just want to make sure that, you know, wildlife and, and fish can, can continue to prosper in these areas. And I think it, this is kind of like that handshake that's needed to happen over so many years. And then the added benefit on top of that is just the cherry on top. Oh, yeah. This story kicks ass. I love it. I think this is my favorite one of the month. It's cool to see a government body putting money up so that other companies have the opportunity to plug this up. And I also like that the Fish and Wildlife Service will be overseeing a lot of the remediation. Because honestly, I think they're probably better equipped to handle that than oil and gas companies because how easy is it just to backfill whatever take out all the dirty soil there's a little bit more to that and these are going to be the experts who can really help them out so great story i love to see this doesn't get much better than that but next our last story for oklahoma nine new laws have been passed by both the oklahoma house and senate to support establishing the legal infrastructure for hydrogen systems Republican Kim David says, quote, We're very interested in Oklahoma opening up commercial trucking for hydrogen, especially with the price of diesel fuel now. End quote. Interstate 40 cuts right through the state, making Oklahoma a great candidate for supplying hydrogen fuel for freight transportation. Several hydrogen companies have already expressed interest in operating in Oklahoma, so this handful of bills could be the start of a more diverse energy system for Oklahoma. And already, this to me looks better than the recently announced federal plan to just drop a metric buttload of ev charging stations oklahoma i feel like they have a plan they're using this as a case study and they already have private companies looking to work with them i'm so stoked you nailed it they actually they have a plan in place they have a blueprint they have how they're going to execute it versus kind of like you just said a blanket ah, throw an ev charger over there let's see how it happens oklahoma is saying no let's use this as a study to then other states that maybe they can encourage to be implemented so right? i think you you're stretch right. it out along the rest of 40 it's sick Bingo. And, and this is just perfect that 
um, it, I think it's our engineering mindsets here, Tavis, that just like, all right, you know, there's a problem. How can we solve this? How can we implement this? You know, there's legitimate steps between points A and point B, um, as opposed to just, I don't know, just give it a shot. But that's everything for Oklahoma. Next up, California. Who is hoping to eliminate 91% of oil and gas use by 2045? The California Air Resources Board released a draft on their carbon neutrality roadmap that calls for all electric furnaces in future homes, electric shipping infrastructure, and aggressive sequestration. This will ideally allow California to reach its goals by 2045. Still, there will be a period for public comment before the regulatory body makes any final decisions. At present, environmental activists are displeased with the use of carbon capture and the expansion of natural gas power, which is kind of funny considering they're rolling blackouts, but that's neither here nor there. They would rather see all hydrocarbons phased out. The Western States Petroleum Association said the plan would lead to more bans, mandates, and expensive regulations. As Catherine Reyes Boyd said in a statement, quote, Forcing people to pick certain jobs, certain cars, certain homes, and certain times to use energy is really out of touch with how ordinary people live, end quote. And I think that quote really kind of sums this up, is just this goal of 91% elimination by 2045. I mean, Tavis, that's in 23 years. That's, that's not a whole lot of time to get rid of 91% of the energy that California needs to run and function as a society. And so I think this quote just hits the nail on the head. Okay, all right, you can't go work in the oil and gas industry. Oh, and you can only drive your electric vehicle to get to your new job. Oh, and by the way, you can't have AC in the summer. Oh, and by the way, you can't turn on the TV at night. Like, how are people supposed to live human lives here in the 21st century without the energy they need to live those lives? It just, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't. And we'll probably talk about this next month, but Jared Polis recently said that there was some sweeping EV infrastructure that came in. He said, well, let's, I believe he said, let's not do it like California. Let's let people decide. Because it doesn't make sense to throw a bunch of EV chargers in a low-income neighborhood where people aren't going to be able to buy new electric vehicles or don't already have them. Let the free market do it. Maybe provide incentives instead of telling people it needs to be this. So I'm excited to see what happens in California because it's going to be a great case study. Absolutely. But a little bit happier story is California's offshore industry lives to fight another day. October spill on Huntington Beach has left a bad taste in California's mouth, yet legislation to shut down three offshore rigs failed to win passage in the Senate. Senate Bill 953 would have given the State Lands Commission the ability to terminate the offshore leases by 2024 if the operators were unable to negotiate a voluntary buyout between the companies operating the platforms. The legislation ignored 23 other rigs in federal waters and focused solely on the three leases near Orange County. Senator David Min introduced the bill and claims, quote, the aging infrastructure of these offshore platforms means they are ticking time bombs. Another oil spill and all of the associated environmental and economic damage is inevitable unless we act now, end quote. Which part of this does make sense, but another part of it's, you know, how about we invest a little bit more to this infrastructure so that this doesn't happen while also fulfilling our energy needs. Also, it seems a little bit theatrical. There's 23 other rigs that we're going to ignore. We're just going to look at the three off the coast of the very wealthy Orange County. Mm, I don't know. You tell me what you think. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, Kern County is at odds with environmental groups and the law. 80% of California's oil comes from Kern County. That's no secret. 
which affords the area a level of autonomy not seen in other Cali basins. In 2015, county officials used an environmental study to approve tens of thousands of wells over a 25-year period. Courts ended up siding with environmentalists who claimed that this was a gross misuse of a single study and that more research was needed. Kern County wrote a new ordinance, but that too is being challenged in court by environmentalists who now want CalGEM to have a more active role in working with the county to approve wells on a case-by-case -case basis. Environmental groups claim CalGEM's hands-off approach just avoids claiming responsibility for any hard feelings from environmentalists or producers in the area. And, I mean, it, it's difficult because Kern County is very different from L.A., <laughs> you know? No, absolutely. And and the thing, I really do think that CalGEM is, is doing it appropriately because it's like, okay, you know, you guys do this study and, and you guys do your study and, and approach us with your results so that we can make a decision. If CalGEM gets more and more involved, it's just going to so... kind of bog down the machine. Exactly. And so I think that the way that they're approaching this is appropriate, um, and it's just kind of a lose-lose for them. Because if they get involved, you know, they tie their hands up with more work that they already don't have the time to do. They're trying to appease environmentalists. They're trying to appease the operators in the area. Let's just let, you know, the, the process move forward, and, and hopefully Kern County oil lives to fight another day as well. But that wraps up all our crazy stories out of Cali. Next, we're moving it to the Marcellus, where we've got a little bit of a loophole. The administration has claimed that it was finding the correct balance between economic and environmental concerns since Democratic Governor Tom Wolf put a moratorium on new oil and gas leases on state forests and state parklands by 2015. Seems reasonable. Wolf's executive decree, however, did not prevent all new leases on publicly held land. Pennsylvania has continued to lease thousands of acres of state-owned stream beds, bringing in tens of millions of dollars in additional revenue. For public lands under the governor's jurisdiction, the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources has leasing authority. According to DCNR Press Secretary Wesley Robinson, the embargo does not apply to stream beds, and this just seems real bass-ackwards to me. We're going to produce on stream bed areas, which are going to be environmentally much more sensitive, and just ignore this other public land? I mean, I don't know. The state forests, the state parks, yes, their beauty's got to be preserved. But I would argue it's much safer to have pads operating there than on the side of stream i i agree with you tavis and you know i i truly in my heart hope that this was simply a kind of a kind of a missed um, section of this document as opposed to kind of intentionally doing this backwards because i agree with you you know why wouldn't you take the environmental approach to try and appease everyone you know let people operate in the area while making it environmentally friendly you know it just it seems like there's you know uh, like a cog missing or a piece of the puzzle that we're, we're just not quite seeing here and and maybe it was just a piece that was left out of the puzzle, and, and maybe that's where this um, loophole or misunderstanding is coming about. But enough of talking about puzzle pieces. Let's talk about fairness. Three trade groups representing Pennsylvania's conventional oil and gas industry are suing the state's environmental regulators to prevent a new rule on methane and other air pollution from being applied to their well sites. According to industry groups, the State Department of Environmental Protection created a single rule that applies to both conventional and unconventional well sites in blatant disregard of a 2016 law requiring conventional wells to be regulated separately from those tapping the Marcellus and Utica shales. When the DEP drafted the regulation, it rejected the reasoning, which largely reflects federal criteria that the state must comply with by mid-June or as fines, including the loss of federal transportation funds. In a letter received by the commission this past month, the DEP withdrew the rule from consideration by the state's Independent Regulatory Review Commission 
and his forthcoming hearing on May 19th. So the hearing is already in progress, but I, I understand the frustration. Someone producing from a conventional well is going to have a far different GOR than someone producing from an unconventional well. And even then, the Utica and the Marcellus are going to have different producing properties, different compositions. So I'm excited to see how this does play out because this has been a problem they've been dealing with for quite some time now, almost six years. So I hope it works out for the producers because I would be hate. I would not be happy to be held to the same standards as a conventional well when I have way more gas being produced. And while we're on the topic of gas basins, let's move it over to the Bakken, where we've got another bit of a bottleneck or shortage. Although North Dakota production is rapidly approaching pre-pandemic production, available labor serves as a hurdle to this goal. Last month, there were only 15 frat crews in the state. While this is a five-crew increase since the start of 2021, it's still a far cry from the 25 crews that were working pre-pandemic. Department of Mineral Resources Director Lynn Helms said, quote, One company has a dozen rigs available in North Dakota, but it's taking them two months to hire and train a crew. In some cases, it takes three attempts, end quote. Plenty of industry workers felt that they wanted more secure employment and left oil and gas entirely, leaving a much smaller pool of candidates to pick from. And you know, Tavis, I think this is a problem that the oil and gas industry is really going to be encountering for the next 5, 10, 15 years. I mean, there's so many individuals that started developing their career in oil and gas and you know would lose their job and was told, yeah, once in a generation, and then a few years later, it happened again. A few years later, it happened again. And people just wanted to seek that that more stable income because, you know, a lot of things like in the oil and gas industry, when it's good, it's great, but when it's bad, it's horrible. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of understand why people, you know, really tried to kind of flew the coop. But at the same time, it seems bizarre that in a place like North Dakota, you know, when they're offering these great salaries and these great benefits that they can't even hire crews to keep up with the work. But let's talk about a lack of proposals. The North Dakota Industrial Commission moved the deadline for pipeline proposals out to August 15th after no applications were received by the deadline set in May. The state is looking to connect the western oil patch to the eastern side of the state, but no companies seemed interested in the work. Are you surprised? I'm not. In November, North Dakota legislature marked $150 million in COVID aid to construct this natural gas pipeline in order to cut down flaring and move the much-needed gas to folks who don't have access to it. WBI Energy owns and operates nearly 4,000 miles of lines in the state and cited regulatory uncertainty, limited demand, and rising costs between labor and land as the primary reasons for the project being unviable. WBI is a subsidiary of MDU Resource Corporation, North Dakota's one and only Fortune 500 company. And how many times have we seen a pipeline get tons and tons of funding get through 75% of its construction and then get shut down or deal with protest or have a president that actually cancels it. I understand the uncertainty, but it sucks because the Bakken has been doing so well. We talk about it in the next article a bit with their gas capture rates, and this would only improve it. But if you're not going to make money out of it or you're worried it's just going to be a sink for money, a bottomless pit to throw into where you get nothing out of, I get why these companies are wary. Yeah, I agree entirely with WBI. I mean, just look at the historical record. It's been nothing, nothing but red tape to get a pipeline built in this area that if they can say, you know, look, you know, there's there's a great opportunity here, but the uncertainty of investing all this time and effort into this just to get it shut down, not worth it. And unfortunately, I have to agree with them. But we have to finish up with a good story. 
Despite Bakken crude oil production decreasing by 6% in 2021, natural gas production increased by 9%. 2021's high was 2.97 billion cubic feet per day, which was actually more than 2019 by 0.02 billion cubic feet. It is safe to say that natural gas production has now surpassed pre-pandemic levels, well, at least in this region. The first reason for the increased gas production relates to North Dakota's gas capture targets as the state does its best to avoid needlessly flaring away free energy. Gas capture rates were at 74% in 2014, which is a stark difference from last December's 92.5%. Another contributing factor is the ever-increasing gas-oil ratio as producers continue to prioritize the exploration and production of oil-based assets, but hey, that's to be expected for a natural gas basin like this. And I think... That is all we have for you in this episode. So again, this has been Tavis Killian and Kevin Olson bringing you some of the best news of last month. Be sure to frack that subscribe button, that follow button, whatever it is you're listening through. Engage with us. We love to see it because we have more content coming out almost every weekday. If you don't want to miss it, you can also follow us on LinkedIn. Otherwise, send any conflicts, reviews, uh, disagreements, especially to podcast at rarepetro.com. Other than that, this has been Tavis and Kevin with Rare Petro, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody. 